thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Well, Happy New Year. It's Sunday the 8th of January 2012. Welcome to The Naked Scientists. I'm Chris Smith and with me this week are Dave Ansell and Dominic Ford. How's both of you? Hi, Chris. Hello. Now this week we're answering your science questions at home, including why do my glasses still work if I put them on back to front, as in with the sides poking forwards? Why do loud sounds make your ears ring and is an expanding universe ripping galaxies apart? And in the news, we'll hear about a new spacecraft that's in orbit around the moon and an implant that can generate electricity inside the body of a cockroach. And in kitchen science, I'll be exploring the clever chemistry going on inside a nappy. As you do. So if you have any questions or comments for us, you can tweet at Naked Scientists. You can also write on our Facebook page. That's at facebook.com slash the Naked Scientists. Or you can, of course, drop us an email. Our email address is chris at thenakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. And with our first question of the new year in 2012, it's Matthew. Hello, Matthew. Hi, good afternoon, Chris. Where are you? I'm in uh, Somerset. And what uh, would you like to know about? Well, it's actually my daughter who'd like the question, so can I put her on? Her name is Amy. She's seven. Ah, OK. Let's talk to Amy. Why don't we see rainbows underneath street lights when it is raining? Oh, brilliant. Amy, thank you for being a Naked Scientist listener. Dave, what do you think? OK, there's probably two effects with this. Um, one of them is that a street light is incredibly less bright than full sunlight. I was just doing a quick calculation. I think it's about a thousand times less bright than full sunlight. And something you might have noticed on when the light gets very, very dim, it's very hard to pick out colours because your eyes are much less sensitive to colour when the light's very dim. So even if there was a rainbow there, you wouldn't be able to see it very well. And with some kinds of street light, the will, the will actually, they will actually create a bit of a rainbow um, you wouldn't have to, you'd have to be looking away from the street light, and it would, but it would be very so dim you wouldn't be able to see it. But there's a second effect, which is a lot of street lights don't have all the colours of the rainbow in them, especially the really um, yellowy ones. They've actually effectively only got one colour in them, a kind of just pure orange colour. And if there is, um, the reason why you can see a rainbow normally is because white light's got all the colours of the rainbow mixed up in it, so the rain can split them up and you can see them in different places. But if the light has just got orange in it, the raindrop can't split it up, so you don't, so all you'll see is orange, so you won't get the colours of the rainbow. But do you get an orange rainbow? Yes, you just get an orange rather than a You did an experiment on that for the Chris Packet Fireworks book and a Kitchen Science um, we did a long time ago using your car indicator 
and a street light to show this sort of effect, didn't you? That's right, yeah. Um, if you look at uh, any kind of brightly coloured thing in the yellow street lights, um, it just looks kind of grey. It actually just looks like orange and black. There's no colour there at all. But then if you take it into normal, normal light or just look at it with a white torch, um, it looks all the colours of the rainbow. And even if you look at it in an orange indicator light, quite often you'll see some colours of the rainbow in there because it's a mixture of kind of green and red and yellow. So you see some colours, but um, under a street light you won't, you'll only see the one. So there's more than one way to make orange. There's many ways of making orange. Amy, does that uh, help you out? Do you understand wh- where you are with rainbows and streetlights now? Yeah. Brilliant. Thanks for having us uh, in, your, in your ears. Thank you for listening to The Naked Scientist. Let's talk to Oscar. Hello, Oscar. Hi. What can we do for you? Um, I was wondering, if you had a really long tube and filled it with rigid balls and then put another one in the end, would a ball come out the other end instantly or would there be a speed of light delay? Okay, so you've got a, a tube full of balls and you're going to apply a force to the ball at one end and you want to see how quickly that the force can propagate through the assemblage of balls, yes? Uh-huh. Okay, Dominic, what do you think? Now, what's going to happen when you push on the end of a tube is that you're going to compress one of the balls ever so slightly elastically and that is going to then exert a force on the next ball along the tube, that's going to compress and then exert a force on the next ball along the tube. And that compression can only propagate at the speed of light because no influences can propagate faster than the speed of light. The force you're actually applying here is electromagnetic. So the um, protons and electrons in your hand will be exerting electromagnetic force against the protons and neutrons in the ball and causing it to compress. In fact, um, it's probably going to be a lot slower than the speed of light because effectively what you're doing by pushing on something very quickly like that is sending a sound wave down it. And the speed of sound is actually the fastest information can pass through a material um, elastically. Um, With something like a steel ball, that's, I think, five or six kilometres a second, much faster than the speed of sound in air, but still very slow compared to the speed of light. So still pretty fast, but a long way short. Oscar, I hope that helps you out. Okay, thank you. Pleasure. Thank you for joining us got a lovely email here which I wanted to share with you partly because Dominic's on the programme and you might remember Dominic a little while ago we did a question which was would a siphon work in space do you remember doing that? that? Good fun yes. Yeah well I've got an email here actually from uh, it says my name is Mary Ann I'm 15 and I live in Rome New York we listen to your podcast in our after school science club and I have some very exciting news we listened to your podcast on what would happen to a siphon in space, in other words, under conditions of no gravity. We entered the NASA Dime Contest that lets students drop experiments in their two-second drop tower at the NASA Glenn Center. We've just found out that our experiment, Siphons in Space, has been picked, so we get to drop our siphon and have it filmed for two seconds in microgravity. We will let you know the results. Thank you very much, Marianne. So you have inspired some NASA research. Well, fingers crossed we turn <laughs> up to be right. Well, we want Marianne to come back. When, when they've done the experiment, we want them back on the programme to tell us what the outcome is because I think you suggested that the siphon shouldn't it work. It shouldn't work, yes. Okay. We're talking of space. Um, tell us about this mission, this Grail mission, which is a um, set of spacecraft orbiting the moon. Tell us about that. That's right. Over the new year, uh, t- two new American spacecraft entered orbit about the moon. Uh, they're currently in quite a high orbit about the moon, descending down slowly, and by March they should be skimming the surface of the moon a mere 30 miles or so above the surface. And what they're going to do when they get there is they're going to make very detailed measurements of the Moon's gravitational field. And what they expect to see is that there'll be very small variations between different parts of the Moon's surface. 
And that's interesting because it's telling you about the rocks which are beneath the moon's surface. Can I just ask, why are there two of them? Because they are basically recording how far one is from the other and so they can use the acceleration due to gravity of the moon underneath on one before the other one gets to that bit effectively so they can can infer how much acceleration each one is feeling. That's right. It's actually a very cunning experiment. They've got two space probes 200 kilometres apart in more or less the same orbit over the moon's surface and they've got radar ranging between these two spacecrafts, they can measure the distance between them with an accuracy of about 10 microns, that's 10 millionth of a metre. And by seeing whether that distance is changing in one way or another, they can see whether one spacecraft is being pulled more strongly by the Moon than the other. And that's telling you about a variation in that gravitational field over that 200 kilometres. So you can work out basically... How, how much mass there is on the surface of the Moon at any given point over its surface. Will they do a sort of systematic survey so they're on a sort of orbit that will carry them all over yeah, the Moon's right. surface over time? Yes, it's going to be in a polar orbit, so going over the north and south pole of the Moon and gradually rotating around the Moon's surface. So over 90 days, they will survey all of the Moon's surface. And they can and work out how much bits of it weigh. They can work out how much bits of it weigh and so what kind of rocks they think are underneath the surface, right down to the core, potentially. And that will tell us something about how the Moon formed and something about how long it took to solidify from the molten mass of rock it formed from. We have an idea that the Moon formed from a huge collision between Earth and another planet roughly the size of Mars 4.57 billion years ago. And most of the Moon is made up of the products of that collision, which were just ejected off the surface of the Earth. Yes, so that's rather interesting because we've done this to experiment for the Earth before. And there's a spacecraft called GRACE, which is actually operating currently. And it's, for example, measuring the melting of the ice sheets that you can detect with these kinds of measurements. The Moon has a very different history. It's been geologically dead for a long time. And making these measurements, the Moon will tell us something about how this blob of rock that was broken off from the Earth's crust behaved when it was broken off. And indeed test whether that model is, is right. You may remember back in August I was talking about a new theory that the Earth originally had two moons, and these two moons collided, and that led to the lunar highlands, which are on average two kilometres higher than the rest of the moon's surface. So the near side of the moon is on average two kilometres less high than the far side. Now, if that collision did indeed happen, you would expect to see signatures in the types of rock that you would see, and GRAIL would be the spacecraft to put that kind of model to the test. We wait with bated breath to see what the results are. Thank you, Dominic. You're listening to The Naked Scientist, Chris Smith, Dave Ansell and Dominic Ford. We're answering your science questions and touching on some of this week's top science stories. If you would like to join us on the programme, then email chris at thenakedscientist.com and we have a Twitter account, which is at Naked Scientist. Dave, here's one for you. Steve Wasmer says, Hello, Naked Scientist. Thank you for an excellent show. I was wondering, if eyeglasses used curved glass to bend light entering the eye to correct vision, then how is it that glasses still work if you hold them backwards so the earpieces go out from the face? Shouldn't this reverse the curve and make the image even more blurry? Okay, this is all to do with actually how a lens works in the first place. Um, A lens bends light based on the fact that light goes slower in glass than it does in air. 
So when a light beam hits it at an angle, it um, slows down on the side it hits first, and that kind of tends to spin the light round a bit. A bit like if you were driving a car and you drove one wheel into some sand, it would spin the car round a bit. It's a bit like that for light, not quite the same. And the light bends round as it hits it, and then when it leaves, the first bit of light to leave the glass will speed up again, and then it kind of twists around in the opposite direction. So if light enters a piece of glass where both sides of it are parallel, it will bend as it goes in, but it will do the exact opposite of the bend as it goes out, and it will carry on in the same direction it started out. But if you make the two at the two angles on the um, the two pieces of glass not parallel, so if it's pointing, so if you kind of get to make a kind of curved shape on both sides, then it will get bent differently on the two sides, and it would end up either pointing inwards, which is a converging lens, or going outwards, which is a diverging lens. Um, if you flip the lens over, even though on a glasses lens they're not the, the two sides don't look identical, it's still thicker on the outside than on the inside, or thinner on the outside than it is on the inside, and so the light will still be bent in the same in the same direction it would be otherwise. Um, although it might not produce quite as good an image because they do put different curvatures on either side <laughs> yeah. for very cunning kind of optimization on the optics. Take it from here, it does work, but it doesn't look quite right when you do it. Um, Ralph will join us from Stanford in just a second, but before he does, Dominic, with his question. And here's one from Manu Golden. Um, it was a New Year question, actually, arrived by email on the 1st of Jan. It says, hello there. A question I would love you to answer is, the universe is expanding and accelerating in its expansion. Galaxies and other cosmic objects are moving away from each other. Why then are the individual galaxies not being torn apart by this expansion? Well, the universe is expanding because it formed out of the Big Bang, which was this massive explosion in the beginning of the universe, which imparted momentum and inertia to um, all the material in the universe. And this was initially a smooth distribution of material for the first half million years or so. Now, after about half a million years, you enter an era that we call the Dark Ages, when the first structures started to form in the universe. And what happened at that point was that in some parts of the universe where there was an over-density, so where there was a lot of material compressed together, gravity was strong enough to pull that material together and for it to become gravitationally bound into a structure we call a galaxy. So the initial velocity given to that material out of the Big Bang was overcome by gravity. And so the uh, movement of material in that galaxy is entirely determined by the gravitational force in that galaxy. Individual galaxies will be moving apart because they're not gravitationally bound. Their velocities are still determined by what they were given by the Big Bang. But inside the galaxy itself, it's all gravity now. So even though the universe is getting bigger as a whole, if I were to measure... The, the distance between the Earth and Pluto, even there's a lot of space in our solar system between the Earth and Pluto, six million kilometres, six billion kilometres or so, that space isn't actually getting any bigger. Yes, and whether that distance is changing will be entirely down to the gravitational forces of all the planets in the solar system. Terrific. Can you do this one quickly for Legal Aware on Twitter, at Naked Scientists, if you'd like to get in touch via that route? Um, what is the oldest known planet in our universe and how would we know that? That's a tough one. That is a very tough one. Uh, it's very difficult to age planets outside our own solar system because we don't know what they're made of. We can only see their gravitational influence on other bodies. Um, so it would have to be a planet in our solar system, which is about four and a half to five billion years old. So it would really be all of the planets in our solar system are about the same age of about five billion years but there will inevitably be older ones out there that we just we can't see yet. We can't date yet, yes. Ralph's with us from Stanford. Hello, Ralph. Hello. Thanks for getting in touch. What would you like to talk about? Well, I had a, I've got a pram 
and I ran it underneath one of the original sodium street lights. Now, the hood and the apron were green. Why did it turn white? That's to do with the way your brain is attempting to interpret the colour information. Your brain uh, attempts to take into account that different light sources actually look very different. If you have ever take, seen a photo taken inside with a camera, which is an attempt to compensate for this, if you take a photo inside with um, normal kind of incandescent bulbs, it looks incredibly yellow and just your brain immediately kind of compensates for that. What you're actually seeing is um, the whole thing is actually looking different types of orange, different brightnesses of orange because there is only one colour. But your brain is attempting to compensate for the fact that the light is very orange. And because everything looks orange, it assumes that anything which is reflecting out of orange is probably white and anything which isn't is probably dark. And so you'll kind of interpret it as white because your brain's compensating. Happy with that, Ralph? Yes, thank you very much. Yeah, well, I got asked something similar by some guys in South Africa about um, why when you look at ordnance survey maps, which have red roads on them, for example, if you look at them under a red torch, why the red roads uh, don't look a weird colour? And that's the same sort of question, isn't it, Dave? In fact, if you look at uh, a red torch under a red light, they disappear entirely. Uh, red, 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 red roads, roads yeah. in, um, you because, can't see them. Um, but white reflects red and so does red, so they both exactly look the same. Exactly the same, that's right. Um, Dave, there's a... News story knocking around this week, or just in the last week or so, about these guys who have got this way of making an implantable system so a cockroach can generate electricity inside its body. That's right. There are lots of applications where you might want to integrate electronics into living systems. So in a human, if you're diabetic, you might want to build a glucose monitor into your body um, or any other kind of health monitoring systems. Um, however, one of the biggest problems is powering these devices. Batteries don't last very long and they're often made of poisonous materials. Another option is nuclear batteries, but they're radioactive, so really not very nice. And an external power supply is awkward and heavy. But, of course, any biological system must have an ample source of energy. It's a living creature. It's using energy all the time. But the energy is normally locked up chemically, often in glucose or other sugars. So you need a way to harness it. So you need some way of getting this out and turning it into electricity. Michelle Rasmussen and colleagues at Case Western Reserve University have been able to do this by building a fuel cell powered by a sugar called treolose, which is common in insects. They break it up into glucose using a genetically engineered enzyme, and then this is oxidised, releasing some electrons as an electric current, which can then do some work. At the other electrode, the electrons are used to react um, hydrogen ions with oxygen to produce water in a similar way as you would do in your body to burn sugar to create energy and water and carbon dioxide. How much energy can they make with this thing? Well, they've managed to build one into a cockroach and it will produce about 0.6 microwatts per square centimetre. That doesn't sound like a lot. It's not a lot. Um, but obviously, they're probably going to develop it and get higher powers but also, even as it is, enough to power a small sensor, so something which might be detecting some kind of chemicals, and just run it every once every minute, charge a battery, run it once every minute, then send anything it's found out, possibly wireless to something else, and it will sit dormant and charge up its battery again, then send off another little wireless signal. So you embed the sensor in the cockroach, or you could have the cockroach carry a sort of cockroach backpack, which would do all the data gathering or whatever you wanted to do, and you'd power it using an embedded sensor. And, and because these are insects, they can go places that bigger things couldn't, presumably. That's right. This is part of a bigger project where they're attempting to use cockroaches and other insects as essentially little tiny robots, sort of why redo all this work which nature's done for us. They obviously need a power supply to attach the electronics to the insects, and so this is what they've been developing it for. 
better hope that the people haven't filled their nuclear bunker or whatever you're trying to penetrate with cockroach traps than those sticky things because otherwise your cockroach will crawl and get stuck and you've got to avoid things which are too sweet otherwise they'll go off after them and yeah so you could either use it for finding people in a disaster area because they can get through all the little cracks or for inspecting things which you can't get at or even for using them as spies which is quite exciting I like that. Well, look, let's go slightly more classical now with something slightly less nasty than a cockroach, violins. Now, you've probably heard, Dave, of these violins of enormous repute, Stradivarius and also Guarneri, who were two of the master makers. They were working in Cremona in Italy in the early 1700s through to the mid-1700s. You heard of them? I have. I don't know whether there's anything special about the violins or whether just people have decided they're wonderful. Well, that's exactly the question that Claudia Fritz and her colleagues were asking in a paper they've published this week in the journal PNAS because these instruments are widely regarded to be the best sounding, the instrument to own. If you are a violinist of any repute, you have one of these, otherwise you're a nobody. The thing is, there have been enormous numbers of studies looking at why these violins should sound so good and there are theories about the fact there was a little ice age in the Middle Ages and this affected the density of the wood that Stradivarius used. There are also theories about how the wood was chemically brutalised with copper salts to stop it rotting and having insects going into it and that had an effect on the way it sounded. Maybe he used a certain varnish, all this kind of thing. No one, though, surprisingly, has actually done a really good acoustic test using professional musicians to play these things and then do a, a blind trial up against modern instruments and see if they can tell the difference. So that's what these guys have done. I guess you've got to do it blind because otherwise um, it's very easy to think, oh, this is just out of areas, I'll play it differently. Absolutely. And, th- and that's what is so funny about this paper because they do actually say they go to this uh, meeting, it's a competition, it's held annually in Indianapolis in America. And as they say in the paper, they, they go to a hotel room They lay out six violins on the bed. They've got three modern violins and they've got three old violins, uh, two by Stradivarius and one by Guarneri, who's uh, highly regarded as well. The aggregate cost of the three old violins is $10 million, which is nearly 100 times the value of the other three violins. They invite 21 professional musicians to take part in a blind trial. They equip them with welding goggles so they can't see what they're doing. They even put perfume on the violin chin rest so that there's no giveaway smells, so they can't tell an old violin from a new one and whatever. And they invite them to do two trials. In the first trial, they say you can pick any of these instruments in any order you like, play them, and then you can keep going back and comparing them, and you've got 20 minutes or so to decide which one you would most like to take home with you. Not that they're going to let them do that because the instruments are so valuable, but they said pick which one you would walk out of the instrument shop with. Which one do you not like? And they were also asking them to assess them on the basis of four different parameters. They were asking them to look at uh, their playability, how they projected sound, their response to the playing, and that kind of thing. And then they did another trial where they paired them up. They put them in a series of unique pairings, so old and new, old and new, old and new, all that kind of thing. And they were asking people to to directly compare them. What emerged is that no one instrument won every time, apart from the loser every time for worse to play was one of the Stradivarius violins. In terms of playability, one of the modern new violins, just a few years old, one hands down every time. But in terms of the actual sonic performance, none of these professionals could tell whether they were playing a Stradivarius or one of the newfangled modern contemporary violins. So it looks like, actually, when you subject this to a proper blind trial where people don't know what they're playing and they're allowed to just play them and compare them with modern instruments, they cannot tell the difference. I guess this isn't very good news if you happen to own a Stradivarius um, violin. I mean, its value is going to be plummeting. Well, I mean... 
they quite nicely say in their paper, and I'll quote, they say, this is Claudia Fritz, and she's based at CNRS in Paris. She says, in a recent wine tasting experiment, it was found that increasing the stated price of a wine increases the level of flavour pleasantness reported by the subjects. Could, she says, a violinist's preference for a Stradivari violin be in part attributable to awareness of its multi-million dollar price tag and historical appearance, both of which can be signalled by its distinctive appearance? I've got a question here for you, Chris. Um, it's from Bev Tucker, and she suffers from ringing in her ears, and she was wondering what causes it and if there's any way of stopping it. Yeah. Um, the most common reason we get ringing in our ears is because we go and experience a sound that's too loud. And what happens is that you have about 16,000 of these tiny things called hair cells in your inner ear. And the inner ear is a structure called the cochlea that quite literally turns sound waves, vibrations, into brain waves, nerve energy. And it does this by these little tiny hairs vibrating. And when they vibrate, they pull open a little channel or a pore in the surface of the cell. And that lets potassium in and it changes the nerve activity in the cell and that's then signaled via the nervous system into your brain so you hear noises now if you're exposed to a really devastatingly loud noise or a noise that's too loud for too long then the tips of these hairs can break off and it jams the channel open for a while and so more potassium goes into the cell than it should so the cell continuously stays active and you keep hearing a sound even though there's no sound there and luckily those nerve tips or the the hair tips can regrow. But if you're exposed to really, really, really loud sounds or a very loud sound for a very long period of time, you can actually rip away all of these so-called stereocilia, the hair cells, and the cell can die. And I did read one quote that said, when you stand on the underground and a big train goes past very loud, a handful of those cells dies every time. So over time, as you age, you lose these things, unfortunately, and you do end up deaf uh, once you get to your old age. So what causes this kind of thing which carries on going for a long time? If the cell dies, would that still cause this noise? Um, What probably happens once you get a chronic problem is that because you are removing from the brain the input from the cochlea, the inner ear, corresponding to that particular frequency that those cells would have signalled, the brain thinks that it's gone deaf. So it turns up the, the amplifier, if you like, because the brain listens a bit harder for the sounds it is expecting and they're not coming. So it turns it up a bit more. And it's a bit like if you turn the radio up when you're tuned to a station and it's not a very good signal, then you hear some hiss in the background. If you keep turning it up, the hiss gets louder and louder and louder. And that's effectively what the brain is doing, or at least that's one model of what we think this so-called tinnitus which is what the the chronic problem is called, actually is. I've uh, got one here from Brian, probably for you, Dominic. Brian Shelf has emailed in, chris at nakedscientist.com, if you'd like to get in touch with us via that route. He says, is it possible that in intergalactic space a sun can form, like out a star, um, from a cloud of gas or something that's just outside a galaxy, or can a star actually be ejected from a galaxy and establish itself in intergalactic space? To take the first question first... Um Stars form from clouds of gas that we call molecular clouds, and they form when the gravitational self-attraction of that cloud is stronger than the gas pressure, which is pushing that cloud outwards. And you can get a sort of chronic failure of gravity, where the whole cloud collapses down to a tiny point and begins fusion and becomes a star. Now, it's actually quite difficult to trigger that initial condition that this cloud is dense enough to collapse down. And you generally need something to give it some kind of compression to get the process started. And probably one of the most likely candidates would be another star nearby going supernova. Or if you're in a 
spiral galaxy like the Milky Way, if you're uh, orbiting around the Milky Way and you travel through one, one of the spiral arms, that's a density sound, sound wave. And as you travel through that sound wave, you're compressed and that causes a star to form. Now, intergalactic space, there aren't really any processes that could cause molecular clouds to collapse down like that. And so I'm certainly not aware of any theories that would allow stars to form in intergalactic space. But it's certainly the case that stars can be ripped out of galaxies and then become free-floating in intergalactic space. If, for example, two galaxies come very close to one another, then the outskirts of those two galaxies can be thrown off at high velocity into intergalactic space, and they form what's called streams, which are long strings of stars stretching out of galaxies into, into galactic space. Like a long string of fairy lights, Dominic. Thank you. Uh, Malcolm's in Lowestoft. Hello, Malcolm. Hi there, how are you? We're very well, thank you. Happy New Year. What would you like to talk about? Uh, I've spent um, 10 years of my life at sea when I was younger, and I had been told that occasionally you could see a green flash when the sun sets. I must have seen many, many hundreds of sunsets at sea, which, as you know, are spectacular quite frequently. I only saw that flash of green twice. I'm wondering what it is and why it's so rare. What it is, is that as the sun drops, it, um, actually, when you lo- the last bit of sun you see as it's going under the horizon is actually when the sun is already under the horizon. And what you're seeing is light being bent by the atmosphere, um, a bit like light in a prism, like I was talking about earlier it, um, with the glasses, and it's actually bent down towards you. Um, now, red light is bent less than green light, which is bent less than blue light. And so as the sun goes down, the very, very last light you should be able to see would be blue, and then you'd, um, just a bit before that you'd see green, and a bit before that you'd see yellow and red. But normally the atmosphere is too dirty for you to ever see the blue because blue gets scattered out, which is why the sky's blue. The sky's blue already, yeah. So the blue just isn't there. And also normally the the atmosphere is too dirty for you to see the green. But if you happen to be on an incredibly, incredibly clean atmosphere, it normally happens out at sea because there's less dust in the atmosphere out at sea because there's less dust there. And if it's been very, very calm, you can just sometimes see that green light being refracted around by the atmosphere and you get this thing called a green flash and it's incredibly rare. I, I've known someone who's at uh, sea, he's also only seen it a couple of times. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, let's talk to David, yeah, who's, in, um, who's in Norwich. Thank you, Malcolm. Hello, David. Hello there. Far away. Right, the question is about water. Is there any new water being made on the planet? I know that water evaporates and then condenses, but is there any new water being made? The answer is yes, there is. Um, the process of, uh, if we say respiration, that's the best example. Dave was talking about extracting energy from the bellies of cockroaches just now, but actually there are other ways of, uh, of, of doing this. If you look at the metabolic processes that are going on in every single living thing on Earth, what we're largely doing is burning a fuel... Let's take sugar, glucose, C6H12O6, and we react it with oxygen, O2, and the products of that reaction are CO2, carbon dioxide, and, you've guessed it, H2O. So what you've effectively done is you've rearranged some of the atoms in the sugar molecule, mixed them with some oxygen, and you've made some water, de novo. So there is water coming out of that reaction... And at the same time, you've got plants which are gathering energy coming in from the sun and they're using the process of photosynthesis to 
drive the reverse reaction. So they're taking carbon dioxide out of the air, they are mixing it with water, which they've got from their roots, and if you take the CO2 and the H2O and the energy from water to, to drive the equation the other way, you then get, you've guessed it, C6H12O6, you're back to glucose again. So although there are no new atoms being made on Earth, there are nonetheless new arrangements of those atoms, new molecules, so you are making water which didn't exist before by rearranging the atoms. Lifting the lab coat on the world's best science, the Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientist. It's uh, Chris Smith, Dave Ansell and Dominic Ford. are answering all of your science questions. Tweet at Naked Scientists or we have a Facebook page running. You go to facebook.com slash the naked scientists. Uh, here's a very nice one from Andrew. What is the difference between MRI and fMRI scanning? Okay, well, they both use the same principle, magnetic resonance imaging. What this involves, in fact, Dave, you can tell us what it, what it actually involves, and then I'll explain basically how doctors use it differently. Okay, um, magnetic resonance imaging is actually should be called nuclear magnetic resonance imaging, but they took off the nuclear because it scared people, even though it's not at all dangerous in any way, shape or form. Um, what it's doing is looking at the nucleus of atoms. In fact, in MRI, it's looking at the nucleus, nuclei of hydrogen atoms. And if you put them in a very strong magnetic field, it affects the way they interact with radio waves. And then by an incredibly complicated bit of maths and some big computers, um, you can basically have different bits of your body being applied uh, have in different strength of magnetic fields, which means that they interact with different radio waves. And by keeping changing the magnetic fields in lots of different directions and doing lots of hard maths, you can build up a picture of where all the hydrogen atoms are in your body and also something about how they are chemically inside the uh, molecules which they're sitting in. Yeah, that, that's um, basically what they're doing. And if you want to do functional magnetic resonance imaging, what they are doing is looking at the level of oxygen which is in the blood. And so you infer how active, say you're looking at the brain and you want to know, is this bit of brain active when I do a certain job? You look at how oxygenated the blood is that's going through that area because an area of the brain which is more active uses more energy and it gets more energy by burning more glucose with more oxygen. Therefore, it augments its blood supply and you can use that as a measure. And I think there's a second thing which they can do, which is they can actually look at the flow of blood because they can kind of magnetise your whole body very quickly with radio waves and, and then they can look at how that magnetisation moves in your body and they can look at where that's moved and anywhere where it's moved is probably blood flowing and so they can work out blood flow just by how what's moved inside the body. Thanks, Dave. Well, time now for this week's Planet Earth. And if you think of the opening scenes in the movie Casino Royale, James Bond goes chasing a villain who swings and slides and jumps along the crane and then across various rooftops. This is actually a sport, and it's known as free running or parkour. And it's now helping scientists at the University of Birmingham to understand how one of man's closest relatives, the orangutan, travels through the canopy of a rainforest. Planet Earth podcast presenter Sue Nelson met Dr Susanna Thorpe from the University's School of Biosciences to find out more. What we're doing here is using the parkour athletes as an analogy for a large-bodied ape moving around a complex environment. And we're getting them to move around an assault course that we've made that they've never seen before, and we're going to record their energetic expenditure while they're doing it. The reason why we're doing this study is that orangutans and the other great apes move around the, the canopy of tropical forest and the branches there are very flexible underneath their weight because the animal is so large. And here we have lots of supports that we can make 
behave like branches in the forest. We can set up the assault course so that it's very complicated, as moving around a forest canopy would be, and we can confound how the supports behave so we can have supports that appear to be stiff, that we make compliant, and supports that are quite compliant that we actually make to behave in a stiff way. And that mimics the challenge that a a large-bodied ape would face moving around the canopy when they have to look ahead of them and judge how the supports available to them are going to behave without being able to test them. The way I would do it to get the best swing is I'd jump up and backwards, reach one arm up, swing to the other side, and as I get to the end point, swing that one arm back down. The athlete that's helping the scientists here is Brendan Riley from EMP Parker. What are the basic moves? Simple vault would be the cat pass, which is like through vaulting gymnastics. You have the tic-tac, that's kicking off a wall to propel yourself higher or further. You have speed vault, that's a really efficient vault, just one-handed. Then there's a bunch of other ones which less efficient but just as much fun. And then the main thing we do is a precision, that's just jumping from one thing to another. Or if you grab hold with your hands, then that's called an arm jump. How do you feel then about helping scientists here examine how primates move? I assume you're not insulted by this. (laughs) Uh, Not at all. Um, I love monkeys, I love (laughs) apes, Um, I wish I was a gibbon. I think I probably was in a previous life. Sounds weird, but we look up to primates. Um, We look at their movements and it's very inspirational. I know some guys who have actually been to different parts of the world just to see how the monkeys move and been training with them. I think it's brilliant. In order to work out what the energy costs are for the parkour athletes as they complete the circuit, you need to take some measurements. And that's where Dr Lewis Halsey comes in. He's a senior lecturer in environmental physiology at the University of Roehampton in London. So, Lewis, what are you going to measure? How are you going to do it? The primary thing we're interested in is the energy costs for our parkour athletes as they traverse the circuit, as they use various bits of apparatus. And we're going to measure that by measuring their oxygen consumption. So we're going to put onto their backs, essentially, uh, a portable oxygen analyzer. They'll have a mask and uh, the, the oxygen consumption of the person and the carbon dioxide output at the same time is measured and that's all relayed to a computer so in real time we can see the various costs of the various apparatus they're using there's a an added twist to this which is at some points they may partly use anaerobic uh, metabolic pathways and the analyzer can't pick that up because it's measuring oxygen consumption which is involved with aerobic pathways Susanna, it's an amazing experiment. I can't wait to find out what the results are going to be. But there's quite an important reason, isn't there, for actually doing this project? It's important for lots of different reasons. One, from the perspective of understanding human evolution and the challenge that the common ancestor of all of the great apes would face and also our ancestors would face when they were partly arboreal and partly moving bipedally on the ground. And secondly, from a conservation or an ecological perspective, if we understand a lot more about the challenges that orangutans face in the canopy and the solutions that they find to solve them and the energetic cost of doing so, then we can better construct conservation strategies for them and they are predicted to be extinct within 10 years in the wild if we don't do something about it. So finding the most effective way to structure a habitat or picking the most effective habitat for them for rehabilitants is a good way to help contribute towards their conservation.
Birmingham University's Dr Susanna Thorpe. She was ending that report from Sue Nelson. You can find out more from Planet Earth online at thenakedscientists.com forward slash planet earth. Dominic, um, Les and Over got in touch and said um, he's referring actually to the email I read from Marianne about doing this experiment in NASA's freefall. And he said, would a siphon in freefall be the same as a siphon in zero gravity? Is it a good, a good measure? Uh, yes, it is. When you're in freefall, you are essentially in zero gravity because all parts of your spacecraft are falling at the same speed towards the Earth. And normally you feel gravity because... I'm feeling an attraction towards the Earth and I'm being stopped from falling towards the Earth by the chair underneath me. And so the chair has to push me up to stop me from falling towards the Earth. The only thing which might be slightly different, and they have to be careful in their design of their experiment, is that because they've only got free fall for two seconds, if they'd already started the siphon before, it, before they dropped into free fall, um, the water's got lots of momentum, and that momentum will actually keep it flowing for quite a long time. So they'll have to um, open the valve or something after it's dropped, otherwise they're not doing a fair test. Yeah, That's indeed. Right, yeah. Uh, David Portwain's got in touch on Facebook, facebook.com slash the naked scientist. How does a cuckoo know it's a cuckoo since it's reared by other species? We've actually had this as a question of the week. And it is an intriguing question because no one knows for absolute certain. But one theory is that the cuckoo's parents may pay a visit to the nest that they have cuckolded and visit their chick as it's reared so that it imprints on them. Because one of the things about birds is that they imprint. In other words, they recognise objects that are nurturing them as their parents. And you can actually make them imprint on inanimate objects. If you have a bird and uh, you put it in contact with a door that opens and closes, it it can end up thinking that the door is its mother and it will follow a door around, (laughs) bizarrely. And so the the one theory is that the cuckoo's parents do occasionally pay visits so the cuckoo recognises that it is genuinely a cuckoo. That or there's some other genetically programmed inanimate behaviour that's in there. Two papers were published this week in the journal Science Translational Medicine and they were discussing a promising new vaccine for hepatitis C. Now this is a virus that spreads from blood to blood contact and in over 80% of people who contract it, it sets up a persistent lifelong infection that progressively damages the liver and that leads to cirrhosis and in some people liver cancer. Now over 170 million people are infected with this worldwide and at the moment there is no effective vaccine. But now scientists may have found a way to protect people by adding parts of the hepatitis C virus to a harmless cold virus called an adenovirus that actually normally infects chimpanzees. This modified virus triggers the immune system to mount a strong response against hepatitis C and that can prevent a person from developing a chronic infection if they're exposed to the virus for real at a later date. Ben Vassler spoke to Oxford University's Professor Paul Klenerman about the work. The specialty of hep C is that it sets up chronic infection in humans so even if you've got a relatively intact immune system you don't seem to normally be able to mount an immune response that gets rid of the virus and if people do become chronically infected some people handle it that pretty well and in fact they have very little inflammation in the liver which is the major consequence but some people have much more inflammation in the liver and as a consequence much more scarring on the liver tissue and so over time they can develop end-stage liver disease, so cirrhosis and also liver cancer. It's turned out to be one of the main reasons people need transplantation in this country and in the Western world. Having said that, the other interesting feature of hep C is that a fraction of people end up clearing the virus on their own. That was actually very attractive from the point of view of a vaccine, since we already know there's some form of immunity which is efficient. What sorts of targets have we been looking at for actually making a vaccine? Broadly, the way you might think about making a vaccine is to 
make either an antibody response or a cellular immune response. So that's mounting a white cell response that targets the infected cells directly. The problem with hep C in terms of antibody responses is that the envelope of the virus is quite variable. So the alternative approach is to try and target the virus as it's replicating within cells. And that really relies on mounting a T lymphocyte response. The T cells will actually look at proteins which are generated during the process of viral infection. So that's, that could be proteins which are part of the machinery of viral replication. And then if the T cell really can recognize those cells, it will secrete chemicals, so cytokines, which are directly antiviral and will limit the viral infection. And they can also kill the infected cells, so actually destroy the virus within it. What are you now doing to target that? And where are your weapons coming from? The trick seems to be to stitch in the bit that you want, in our case, as I said, the internal proteins of hep C, into something that's really going to get the immune responses fully activated. In our case, we've used an adenovirus. This combination of using an adenovirus with the hep C internal proteins seems to produce very strong immune responses of the type that we see in people who naturally clear the infections. Aren't we already immune primed against adenoviruses? Yeah, that's a very good point. So I think one of the reasons adenoviruses are good is that the body's very used to seeing them, but exactly for the same reason. We, we already have immunity. So we've gone for an uh, approach using vectors which people won't have seen before, or at least will rarely have seen. So one of these is a human adenovirus, but just a, a rarer strain. And the other is a, a completely novel vector which comes from a, a virus found in a chimpanzee. What sorts of results are you seeing? Are you actually getting the immune response that you expect? There were two interesting bits of the trial. We sort of exceeded our expectations with the priming. So if you take somebody who's not got any immune response against hep C, give them the, the vaccine, they generated very big responses. So the levels were higher than we expected, but we were pleased to see that also they targeted a lot of different parts of the virus because that's really important if you're going to overcome the the variation that's already embedded within the viral genome. They did the kinds of things that we'd like the T-cells to do, so they proliferated well, and they made the cytokines that I mentioned, and they looked like they would kill an infected cell. The second stage where we were trying to boost with the alternative adenovirus, so we had two viruses and we gave a group of patients each one, but in different orders. The boosting effect was a bit less than we'd expected, and, and, and we think that's probably because of what we were just discussing, that once you've seen one adenovirus, you start to make immune responses against it. But the net result, which I think is the important one, is that after six months or a year, so well after the vaccination, we still had very big populations of cells which still seem to have the qualities that we'd really like in a protective response. Is it safe to be using viruses that have adapted for other species? We went through a number of safety committees to try and make sure this was as safe as possible. So I think the key thing is that the, the viruses are made so they're, they're replication incompetent. So a large chunk of genetic material is removed and it's really not possible for the thing to repair itself to become an infectious virus. You can't really expect to make progress in this field if there's any even small hint of a risk from these things because you would be giving them to completely healthy people in very large numbers. So you have to eliminate as many risks as you can possibly imagine. So you've done everything you can to make it safe. It seems to be very effective. What's the next stage? It's nice to see these responses, but they're all in the test tube. So any vaccinologist would really want to know whether they were protective. 
what we'd have to do and what we're planning to do with uh, collaborators in the States is to look at people who are at high risk of infection. In Baltimore, there's a very well-established group of intravenous drug users where because they use needles, they're putting themselves at risk of hep C. So they've designed a trial where they imagine that the rates of infection are sufficiently high that we could really see an impact from this vaccine. So that's planned to go ahead now that we've developed the vaccines to this stage. Professor Paul Klenerman from Oxford University. He was talking with Ben Vausler. And now with a look at what else has been making scientific headlines around the world, here's Mira Senthalingam with our Naked Scientist Newsflash. Silkworms have been genetically engineered to spin fibres containing spider silk proteins, producing a tougher, more elastic material. Farming of spiders for their silk is challenging due to small production levels and cannibalism within populations. But publishing in the journal PNAS this week, Randy Lewis and colleagues from Utah State University have overcome this problem by creating transgenic silkworms, expressing spider genes for silk elasticity and tensile strength, resulting in a composite material produced in large quantities and with a wide range of potential applications. Certainly one area that we're very interested in is artificial ligaments and artificial tendons for ligament and tendon repair. We've got uh, collaborators who are interested in using it for uh, helping them build a very strong bone matrix, very fine sutures. Beyond the biomedical, there's interest in things like parachutes. We can also match different applications. So for a tendon, you want something that's very strong and not very elastic. For a ligament, you want something that's strong and very elastic. So we'll be custom designing our genes and the silkworms to make a, a specific silk that has a very specific application. Unique communities of marine species have been discovered on the Antarctic seafloor, living in hydrothermal vents off the coast of the East Scotia Ridge in the Southern Ocean. Using remotely operated vehicles, Alex Rogers' team from the University of Oxford found new species of yeti crab, stalked barnacles and seven-armed starfish, unseen anywhere else in the world, whilst animals such as tube worms and vent crabs, commonly associated with hydrothermal vents, were nowhere to be seen. The southern ocean may act as a gateway for the dispersal of some of these animals from one ocean to another, but that the very harsh environmental conditions of the southern ocean probably means it acts as a barrier for the dispersal of other groups. The East Scotia Ridge is somewhere between uh, 10 and 20 million years old, so it would seem that these animals may have become isolated on the ridge um, shortly after it was formed. The distribution of vent animals and the evolution of hydrothermal vent faunas around the globe is much more complicated than we previously suspected. A new gene identified in mouse models could provide insight into the causes of human deafness. David Ornitz and colleagues from the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis found that the gene, named FGF20, which codes for a family of proteins called fibroblast growth factors, was crucial for the formation of outer hair cells, sensory cells needed to amplify sound in the inner ear. FGF20 is a critical signal for the uh, formation of outer hair cells and might be a deafness-related gene in humans and that it is our hope that uh, FGF20 may be useful to either protect or help to regenerate uh, sensory hair cells that have been damaged by noise, by drugs, or through the ageing process. And finally, as many of us start the new year with a resolution to get in shape, 
the key factors needed for our muscles to grow and bulk up during a workout have been discovered by scientists at the INSEM Institute in France. Working with mice, Athanasius Sotiropoulos identified the need for serum response factor, or SRF, in working muscle fibres to signal the proliferation of satellite stem cells found within muscle, which then grow and fuse to existing muscle fibres, resulting in growth. But the implication is that, for example, during ageing, there is a muscle atrophy that is called sarcopenia, or uh, uh, when you are immobilised at bed, uh, you, you get a very important uh, muscle atrophy. So if we can identify all the genes that are really involved in uh, controlling muscle uh, growth, then we can use those genes to have less uh, wasting during aging or uh, during uh, bed resting. The work was published in the current edition of the journal Cell Metabolism. Mira Senthalingam with our Naked Scientist News Flash. And all of the news stories we're discussing this week are also on the line on our website at nakedscientist.com forward slash news. And this is The Naked Scientist with Chris and Dave and Dominic. And it's time to get hands-on and a bit experimental. Dave, you brought in a nappy. I have to say it's a clean one, though. <laughs> so not I'm, re- I'm relieved <laughs> by that. Why have you brought in a nappy? I thought we'd look at some of the chemistry which goes on inside a nappy um, to keep it dry, is the idea. So the chemistry rather than the, the biological products? Yeah, I, I thought I'd avoid those for the moment. <laughs> OK, so I've got a perfectly normal um, disposal nappy. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to cut into it. I'm actually cutting in from the non-baby side, because, as it were, so from the outside of a nappy. So we can get a nice big slit in there. If you have a look inside that, okay. there's lots of cotton wool. Oh, yes. Yeah, and OK, so Dave has cut into the, the pad that normally contains the stuff that would, would, you would feel if you squeezed the nappy. And it, it looks like cotton. It just looks like cotton wool, actually. If you feel it, there's also something else in there. Oh, it's granular. It feels quite hard. Yeah, it's like, it feels like sugary stuff. Yeah, sort of caster sugar-sized stuff. Mm. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try, try and collect that caster sugary stuff in a bag. It takes a bit of struggling <laughs> and you end up with, uh, if you're not careful, you end up with cotton fibres all over the place. You don't want to be careful with this if you're asthmatic, but... Stuff isn't poisonous, but don't get it in your eyes. Okay, it's actually called polyacrylate, this stuff. So I've got a good amount in my bag now. Dave now has a bag that, if you get stopped by a policeman on the way home and he finds a bag of white powder in the back of your car, he's going to wonder what it is. I'll have to show some science then. <laughs> I've just been chopping up nappies. <laughs> I'm so sure that'll work. Now what? Okay, so I'm going to take some of this stuff, which does just look like caster sugar, and put it in a glass. Uh, let's put a fair amount of this in here. It's quite a lot, isn't there? You've got sort of several handfuls coming out of this of nappies. Um, okay, so we've probably got about five or ten grams of this stuff in the bottom of the glass. And now I'm going to pour water in on the top of it. There we are, a nice glass of water. So I have a glass full of water with this stuff bobbing around in it. It looks actually a bit like snow. You know when you um, when you have those Christmas scenes that you shake them up and they sort of snow, a snow scene? It's a bit like that at the moment. Actually, while, while that one's going, actually, if you watch it, you can see there's now it looks like there's two or three times as much as it was originally. You mean, is it swelling up? The answer is yes. The, the stuff, there was a layer about a centimetre high at the bottom. It's now two centimetres high. It's, it's definitely getting bigger, the white layer at the bottom. And this is one I did 
earlier and that actually does look very very like snow in fact this stuff is often Ugh. used as... it's, it's all squidgy and spongy What's and it, ha- do, it does look like snow actually this stuff is actually it's a kind of polymer. dry though um it's absorbed and absorbed all the water and so this is now just full of a kind of um load of crystals as uh, jelly crystals it's a big long polymer and the polymer is actually made out of um essentially vinegar type molecules which have been reacted with sodium so sodium um, polyacrylate um and these are incredibly incredibly soluble but because they're all tied together in a big long chain they can't kind of escape so wander off so they attract water incredibly strongly because they're so soluble but they can't escape so what actually happens is you get this big kind of dispersed sort of network of this polymer with water stuck in the middle which is called a gel and one gram of this polyacrylate can absorb more than 100 grams of water Gosh, that's a lot. So, which is really useful in the nappy context, obviously, because you can absorb all those nasty liquids, which, of course, makes them less smelly. Um, And also, it's really often used in farming or with plants because it'll absorb a huge amount of water and then release it slowly over time. So you could grow plants in a nappy? Is that what you're saying? If you had a nappy... It would be a really good way of keeping water in and keeping your plants hydrated. And if it was a used nappy, it would come pre-made with fertiliser. There'd be nitrogenous waste and other forms of (laughs) of fertiliser. Ideal. I mean, maybe we could make a fortune here, Chris. Okay. Any other? Anything else to add, or are you done? Um, you can see that we, one that I just filled now. If you look. At- oh wow! We've got a complete solid. The glass has turned solid. Yeah, the water was a complete glass full of water with a little bit of this stuff at the bottom. We now have a glass full of this gel. The, the absorbing capacity is amazing. Absolutely incredible. Yes. Thank you very much, Dave. You can find out more about Dave's experiments online at nakedscientist.com forward slash kitchen science. Thank you, Dave. Dominic, a couple of quick ones for you before we go to our hard question of the week, which is all about sunglasses and suntans. Kai in Lexton says, could a lead barrier protect us from solar wind? Yes, in fact, uh, that is a technology which has been tested on the International Space Station to keep the astronauts safe if the solar wind should flare up. Now, in fact, they don't tend to use lead because lead is so heavy and obviously weight is very important on the International Space Station. But a thin layer of metal or plastic is enough to to deflect the particles. And uh, Paul uh, has texted in to say, since I was a child, I've often wondered, when looking at an image in a mirror, the left becomes the right, but why doesn't the top become the bottom? Well, that's quite a good brain teaser. In fact, when you look at yourself in a mirror, nothing is inverted at all, because if you look at where the left side of your face is in the mirror, it's on the left-hand side exactly where you might expect it to be. But if I turn around and look at Dave, then I've had to swing myself around and invert my definition of left and right by swinging myself around. And in doing that, my definition of left and right is the opposite to Dave's. So I see his right side on my left side. So does that mean that if you turned around, instead of turning around left to right, you kind of turned yourself upside down? So you sort of did a forward roll and turned yourself up, turned around to look at me by inverting yourself then instead of left to right being swapped around up and down would be? That's absolutely right. I don't think I'll try it in the studio, but if I were to stand on my head to look at you, I'd see up and down inverted rather than left and right. Is this important in your field of space science when you're looking in telescopes and things like that? Yes, yeah, certainly with telescopes. Different sides, left and right, top and bottom, will be inverted in different kinds of optical system, and you do have to worry about that, yes. Dominic, thank you very much. Well, on the subject of very hard-to-answer questions, over to Hannah Critchlow for this week's Question of the Week. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from alpha to omega. Well, summer's still some way off, but looking on the bright side... This is Michael Patella from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. If you're not wearing sunscreen, are you more likely to get sunburn while wearing sunglasses? 
So does donning dark glasses affect your ability to make the brown suntanning pigment melanin? With the answer, here's Cambridge Laboratory of Molecular Biology scientist Mick Hastings, who's an expert on how the body responds to light. Bottom line is no, but it is an intriguing question. Melanin is produced in response to light actually in the skin itself. It doesn't come from any glands. But there is a gland called the pineal gland, not the pituitary gland, the pineal gland, which produces something called melatonin. Now the interesting biology here is that melatonin can affect pigmentation of skin in amphibians. In fact, that's how it was discovered. But melatonin has no effect on the skin of humans. It's actually melanin that makes us go darker in response to the sun. There's still another neat piece of biology underlying this, and that is to say that in recent years, what's been discovered is a completely novel set of light-responsive cells in the retina called intrinsically photoreceptive retinal ganglion cells. Bit of a mouthful, but there they are. And what these cells do, they're nothing to do with enabling us to see the world around us, but they're there for us to sense changes in light intensity and quality. And they have a very important effect on our mood, on our biological clocks and our circadian rhythms. So at some level, if one were to wear sunglasses, it would affect not just how we see the world in terms of objects and movement and colour, it would also affect our response in terms of our mood, which would include heart rate, pupil contraction, things like this. So there are some subliminal effects of light on the body, which will be influenced by wearing sunglasses. But to cut to the chase, that will not affect whether or not we're more or less sensitive to sunburn and sun tanning. So wearing dark glasses can affect your mood by decreasing the activity of the intrinsically photoreceptive retinal ganglion cells in the eye. But it shouldn't alter the melanin production in your skin. That is, unless you're a frog. Next week, a colour change of a different variety. Hello, this is Jeff from Encinitas, California. I made several batches of caramels over the holidays using a recipe that combines corn syrup, brown sugar, condensed sweetened milk, and butter in a saucepan. The mixture is heated over a medium heat for about 40 minutes until it reaches a final temperature of 244 degrees Fahrenheit. This year I was using a new digital thermometer and was surprised to observe that rather than rising at a constant rate throughout the entire cooking time, the temperature would rise steadily for a few minutes, then remain constant for several minutes, and then start rising again. Why would the temperature rise so inconsistently? I love The Naked Scientist and listen to it while commuting in the car to and from work, and of course, while spending 40 minutes making caramels. So why should the sticky stuff in the pan get hotter in stages? Well, send any answers you can cook up to chris at thenakedscientist.com, tweet at Naked Scientists, write on our Facebook page, or join in the debate on our forum, which is at nakedscientists.com forward slash forum. Hannah Critchlow. Thank you, Hannah. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you at home for all of your questions. We're back next week, pushing the boundaries of the human experience as we explore cybernetics, how we make people part human and part machine. We'll also find out as part of that how a new electronic device could help people who are blinded by the condition retinitis pigmentosa. Thank you to our production team, Tom Simpkins, Mirosenthaling and Ben Vausler and Hannah Critchlow. In the meantime, send in any questions to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Have a wonderful week and we'll see you next time. 
The Naked Scientists podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the STFC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more cutting-edge science, join us online at nakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.